Welcome to the Korea Pod, brought to you by Transition Solutions. Your host for today's episode will be our founder and CEO, Mr. Fred Studley. Joining us this morning is Mike Dunford. Mike is a leadership and human resource consultant, as well as an advocate for military veterans. He served as a CHRO and senior vice president of human resources for Covidian, $11 billion global medical device company with 38,000 employees operating in more than 70 countries. As a former officer in the Marine Corps, Mike has been very active in supporting returning veterans and their re-entry into the workforce. Mike talks about his progression leading to the CHR role. He believes the executive compensation background and board-level presentation experience were keys uh, that led to his selection. We'll be talking to Mike Dunford. Mike, uh, welcome to CareerPod. Thanks, Fred. Thanks for having me. Well, why don't we start uh, in the beginning? Uh, tell me a little bit about your early life. Uh, where did you come from? Where the where about the schools did you attended, and how about your early career choices? Sure, Fred. Um, so I'm local to the Boston area. Uh, my dad was a was a career Boston police officer, and uh, I attended Boston College and. While at Boston College, I uh, kind of grew up around a family of service. My dad, my uncles were all in the military, and my older brother was in the military at the time. So I, uh, probably at my sophomore year in college, decided to join the Marine Corps after I graduated, which I did. Uh, did seven years of active duty in the Marine Corps. The last three years, I was uh, an officer recruiter in Boston, and that led to the transition that I ultimately made, which was into the human resources profession. And my first role was as a recruiter. Okay. Yeah. And where did you first work? Uh, I worked at uh, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, which at the time was Harvard Community Health Plan, uh, the first HMO in the nation. And uh, it was a great opportunity for me at the time because they were in a heavy growth mode. Okay. They were acquiring lots of group practices. Right. And what were your biggest takeaways from your Marine service uh, in terms of either the discipline it gave you or uh, I think the, the services are a great way to get an early introduction into leadership. Sure. Uh, what kind of imprint did they leave with you? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was it was definitely the, the leadership piece and all of that encompasses from a skills perspective, the ability to communicate, the ability to direct others, uh, kind of work in a, a high-paced, uh, dynamic environment, goal-oriented, uh, those kind of all, you kind of learn those early on in the Marine Corps, you know, at the age of 22, 23 years old, you're in charge of 40 men and women, and so that was a piece that I was able to leverage. Once I kind of got the, the technical piece of being an HR person under my belt, um, okay. but I started learning recruiting the civilian way in HR in, in a healthcare company first. What was the major difference between your recruiting in a kind of command and control structure yeah. to uh, a more, not I wouldn't say laissez-faire, but a, a whole different environment? What were the big adaptations you had to take? Yeah, I think, I think recruiting in the, in the Marine Corps was a combination of what I learned was recruiting in a civilian company with a little bit more of the sales spin to it mm -hmm. um, because you were oftentimes talking to folks who knew very little about the, the mm -hmm. world they were looking or considering and uh, to enter. And so you had to, you had to do a little bit of selling about the features and benefits of joining the military and then joining the Marine Corps. 
Whereas when you start recruiting on the civilian side, they understand the company that they're interested in and they understand more about the products and the services they sell. So. Right, right. Now, the first day you report to work at Harvard uh, Pilgrim, uh, you, you have a decision to make. Because before, you had no decision in terms of what to wear. Right. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that first day, of you, did you start to bristle the fact you weren't going to wear tan khakis uh, right. or what, what was that well, I, I had to go shopping. <laughs> had to go shopping. Okay, that, that's that was a big expense right. right there. Had, okay, that's right. Shirts and ties and and jackets. Uh, I had to re, re, replenish my wardrobe for sure. Okay, and as you started in uh, the civilian employment, uh, how about the challenges uh, that you faced? Any in particular? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, and, and, I, and I do a lot today, as you know, Fred. But the the cultural change is pretty significant. Um, yeah. The the you know the the focus from the military of of time and organization and in um, in pace is very different when you shift into a, a nonprofit healthcare company right. um, and so that was probably one of the biggest things I had to kind of take that extra time to pause reflect and learn okay that's how they do it here I got to slow down a little bit or I got to adjust this way yeah. right right and in some ways uh, for all the talk about you know procedure and process control in the service, you had a fair amount of autonomy in a number of your positions, even beyond the normal uh, maturity curve, if you will. Absolutely. Um, you know, in the military, in, in the early days as, as a commissioned officer, you're very autonomous. Um, yeah. You know, you get an intent of what they want, and then it's up to you to put the plan and execute. And in, in the civilian world, that transition for me was to just um, be clear about how that worked so that I didn't step on toes, if you will, as I was trying to get work done. Yeah, yeah well, the new management style for the last 20 years has been consensus. That's right. Decision. No one, actually, my first job, I, one person interviewed me and they hired me on the spot. Yeah. Now, that never happens right, uh, right. now. So and anyway. healthcare was very much leading the consensus management right, model. Right. <laughs> yeah, we had a person interview in a healthcare company. He had 29 interviews. And he didn't get the job. Yeah. So it, it happens. Uh, how about mentoring? Uh, you know, in your early parts of your career and even to mid-career. Sure. Uh, any mentors and uh, that have really helped you, and how so? And you can yeah. name names or not, but who's really been helpful and how? Yeah. You know, I, I was I was very lucky because you know coming in. So if you think about my career, I had this seven-year period where I was not working in the civilian environment, and my peers were. And so I had a little catching up to do. At least that's how I felt. And I was very lucky. I had a few leaders throughout early and mid-career that took a little extra time with me. And, and I reflect on that now as I work with veterans. That's what I needed. And, and so the, the time that they spent in explaining perhaps a little more in-depth of how things worked or needed to work was, was pretty invaluable to kind of make sure I didn't go off the tracks, you know. Okay. Um, I won't name names, but there are there are a few that I, I still am in touch with that, um, as I do some consulting now that that I talk to quite often. Um, and, and it was it was for them or, or for me, I should say, the giving of their time. And, and I try have, have tried to do the same with folks, you know, more junior to me, because it is a pretty significant advantage to have the mentor you can reach out to right. with the perplexing problem that you just can't get your arms around and you don't want to go down the hall and ask your boss. You know? right. So right. it was pretty invaluable. 
It is tougher now, and I'd ask you to reflect on your role or you want to be a mentor because our organizations are flatter now than they've ever been, and just having the time to devote to that informal mentoring uh, discussion is difficult. Were you able to mentor others in your corporate roles as you... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I because of how I benefited, I, it was, you know, it's, it's one of those things, lots of organizations have mentoring programs, and so, sadly, sometimes they'll die by their own weight, you know, right. because of that time dimension. Yeah. You get folks who are interested, but then they just can't make the commitment when it comes to practically doing it. Um, I, I was always kind of overcompensated for that to make sure that I set time aside to do mentoring because I knew how much it had helped me, particularly as you asked in that early period of my career where I was still trying to figure out this HR thing, you know, right. and did I make the right choice? And and, uh, and, it, and it was the time and those voices along that way in the early years that really helped me. So I put a lot of value in that and, and, and have hopefully repaid that to, to several folks. Okay, yeah. that's great. Now, your career, uh, as I understand it, you had some... Uh, you know, starts and stops, and in, in because of some military obligation yeah. too, uh, you, you had an active duty stint uh, yeah. where you went away for a while. Well, tell us a little bit about that transition, and then back into human resources. Sure. You know, it was interesting. Um, so I so I spent seven years, uh, and when I came back home to Boston, um, had decided that I would get off active duty, and and I did. And I joined the reserves, and that would have been 1989 or so. Well, in 1990, uh, Desert Storm and Desert Shield happened, and as a reservist, I got activated okay. within about a year of being off active duty. And I spent about six or seven months um, away, um, fortunately on the coast of North Carolina and not any further. But um, but when I when I was away. The protections for jobs were a little different back then, and they filled, I was an HR generalist at the time, they filled my position. I worked for a great organization, great people, so when I came back, they just, they moved me into compensation. And and I remember joking, I was, because of the grading system, I was moved into a senior compensation specialist, but I had never been a junior compensation specialist. This, like, <laughs> this sounds more like the MOS movement That's in right, the yeah. service That's than anything right. else. It, okay. it was, it was a, a, an interesting thing, but a really good deal for me because it put me in a specialty that I didn't know a lot about but had a great opportunity to learn. Again, a mentor stepped in the director of the, the compensation benefits function at the time, and really spent a lot of extra time with me to ramp me up so that I could, um, you know, add some value to the role. And, right. uh, and I held that role for a couple of three years, and, and uh, it became a pretty foundational role for many other jobs in my career as I advanced. Okay. Yeah. And your, your progression was traditional to... HR manager, HR director. Uh, it, it was it was traditional, and this is as I've coached HR professionals now. It was traditional in its upward trajectory, but I also was very conscious of the the lateral moves. Yeah. So I wanted to make sure that I spent as much time in the specialties as I did in the more generalist business partnering kind of jobs. Right. And when I looked back on my career in, in recent years. You know, it, it probably ended up ultimately falling more into the business partner space, but maybe 60-40, you know. Okay. And, and I think being conscious of, you know, I, I did a comp job. Now I needed to get back into a generalist role. And I was in a generalist job 
so when my first director job, as an example, I was the director of comp and benefits. So I kind of went back over, you know. Yeah, would that be some advice you'd give people that are in HR, unless they have a, a you know, unrelenting want and desire to go deep into a function, like they want to do nothing but benefits, but putting that aside, you know, having some rotational assignments and working into different functions uh, will help them in advancement. I, I think it's invaluable, and I think it's, when, when you talk in terms of career, you have to you have to look at it that way. If if your ultimate objective is to lead an HR function in an organization, you know your candidacy for those jobs is going to be much stronger if you have a variety of a career path where you've done a few different things. And I've done that. I've taken really successful business partners and moved them into a corporate function, a, a rewards job, if you will, to get them that that experience. Sometimes kicking and screaming, but it was yeah. a very, you know, trust me, it's good for you kind of move because it does position you among the competitive set to get the next job. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, you know, I, I did it in, I had HR systems job. I had, you know, as I mentioned, benefits and comp um, in recruiting. So by the time I was a director, I had touched several different yeah. pieces of the HR function. And, and you become a better customer when you do that kind of career path. You're able to understand what to expect from the rest of the function to help you help the business, and I think that, that that's a pretty uh, helpful insight that you get. Yeah, and that, that helps both as you face your HR you know, service providers, but also as you face your, your ultimate customers, the people in, in the, the Oh, units. absolutely. So yeah. you can talk the talk yep. and so forth. Uh, how about emerging technology? You, you know, HR like all the entities, has changed dramatically in terms of how we use technology. Yeah. Uh, any major trends that you'd point to in that regard? Well, I, I think um, I think anything we do now has to be on a mobile phone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I think that as we as we move toward, you know, if you think of my career, I remember the the first innovative technology project was getting resumes scanned into a database so we could do recruiting more efficiently. And, and so you think about how far we've advanced in, in that, just that one slice of the technology. But um, you think about self-service and the move to both manager and employee self-service. In a matter of the last 10, 15 years, it's changed dramatically. Right. And it has to because as organizations look to be more cost-effective and more efficient, um, Technology has to enable our ability to deliver the services mm. while we try to do the more higher-valued, impactful activities. Mm. And, and um, you know, moving to a smartphone is probably the best thing that could have happened to the HR function, you know. Mm. Pretty soon everything will be voice-activated. Right, just yeah. talk to our phone or no, whatever. No, absolutely, yeah. yeah. But, uh, in terms of uh, you, you, your last position was CHRO, or Senior Vice President in Human Resources, uh, you, we talked about the value of having multidisciplines qualifying for that. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how you looked at that job? What were your principal responsibilities as a CHRO? And and some people are in that job, and it's relationship oriented. They're really working up the organization, uh, taking care of uh, the 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 C-suite requirements. Others they look at it as a uh, you know, kind of a farming situation where they're really developing 
the talent in the the team and they're doing the lifting what was your experience like yeah i mean if and it's helpful as you've kind of framed it i think if i think about it um we were a um, a growing company globally and so we had these talent needs that required us to define what they would be the capabilities that we needed for the future for success we also needed to build the processes and programs to support finding that talent because of the growth of the organization. So if simply put, my focus was on talent enterprise-wide and then how to, how to do that, how to do that work, whether it was succession planning processes, leadership development programs, those kinds of things that we didn't have and we were building as we were growing. Um, and so those two areas were, were pretty pretty big areas for me to focus on. There is a significant relationship piece to the job though, um, particularly as a global company. Understanding the business of course is primary, but then understanding the differences in the business that exist across a global organization um, is critically important because oftentimes you're in conversations where you might be the only person in the room that understands that difference. And it's an important difference to put into a conversation about the future of the company. Right. And, and so, um, so understanding the leadership that was out there, knowing them, knowing what their challenges were, I spent a fair amount of time on the road right. um, to, to get at that, you know. Yeah. Because back at, the, back at the home center, I was, I was the one that could represent it oftentimes. Yeah, that gets tougher and tougher as, as you know, more and more global uh, challenges come up because it's always been FaceTime. Right. That's the way to understand a person and what motivates them and what the drivers are or their team and that, that gets really tough as you right. get uh, 38,000 people to, absolutely. to support. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, how about uh, your, you've got a management style. How would you in 12 words or less describe your management style? Um, <laughs> that's a great question. Well, other people may take 32 <laughs> words, but how would you use a dozen words? I mean, for, for me, it's it's about um, getting good people who are competent in what you're paying them to do and then allowing them to do it. Um, okay. and, and I think that's worked pretty well for me. Um, okay. the, the, the empowerment piece, particularly in a, in a distributed organization, a decentralized organization, is pretty important. Okay. Uh, not naming names because yeah. you you passed on the opportunity yeah, to name names and mentoring. So God knows you're going to pass on this question. But how about your best manager and why? Uh, and how about your worst manager and why? Yeah, I mean, it to, could be in the service. It could be outside. No, it's fair. And to the point I just made. So so I am the kind of leader I am because I know what the best looks like and I know what the worst looks like. And and so the best manager I had was was the person that empowered me to to you know it was i was the director of um, compensation benefits and hr systems and he wasn't and he allowed me to be that leader and set the direction of that organization make the talent decisions in that organization and it makes and he empowered me to have the relationships with the with the company and the customers so that I would deliver the best product we could. That was great and a great scenario. The flip of that is the micromanager, you know, yeah. and, I've, and I've worked for somebody in the past who wanted to know, you know, pretty much every move I made with an organization at the time it was a little smaller. I was a, um, I was a director level position, 
but I had um, compensation and just the systems piece and um, pretty smothering effect yeah. in, in the contrast the two um, get you very clear about what you define as good you yeah. know yeah a couple of takeaways there uh, it takes a certain level of confidence that a boss has to have to let go right and then one of my truisms might be never take a job for a person that used to have the job you're applying for right. because they'll tend to go under any level of stress back to what they know best right. or think they know best right. and that tends to be the seat you're occupying well and, and I and I had the you know coming from the just touch to the military a little bit we, we call it trust and confidence you yeah. know the special trust and confidence now you have phrases for everything we in the do. military we you have do. big signs you know a lot of, and, and lot of signs I should go into the sign business that's and right. do, do well okay but that's but this notion in, of special trust and confidence right. was was just that that you know at a very young age you're put into a situation and you know nobody wants nobody's going to tell you how to do it you got to figure it out you know and and so you you either thrive or not in that kind of environment. I fortunately did. And so when I when I made the move into HR, that's the same kind of environment that I sought. You know, it was was really not to not to be in a position where I had to turn to somebody every time I needed to make a tough decision. Um, so the autonomy, to your point, right. but more importantly, the trust and confidence of who I worked for was critically important. Yeah. And you were working in a successful organization. We were. And I think it is, I've coached some other people, it makes a big difference if you're in a successful company making money, good product design, good quality, and well, there's probably a 30% of the companies out there that struggle every day to make money. And that builds a stress that, that permeates the whole organization, including HR. And uh, sometimes... Uh, you know, the trust and confidence, you know, it should be there because that's the way to work their way out of their right, problems, right. but they can't quite get there. So it's a, a tough environment. No, it is, and I, and I think that um, in those kinds of situations, and I'm familiar with companies that are that are in that 30% slice, um, there's, there's such an important HR role there, yeah, there that, is. that the function can play to try to right the ship, you know, um, it's not always just about what HR can and can't do, but I think that when you think about it from a leadership perspective, if you have the right strategic partnerships with the leaders who are making some of these decisions that are creating this this negative environment, you can influence that to turn it. Right. You know, I mean, right. it's a challenge, and oh, it's yeah. you know, it's not always easy. How about uh, the role luck played <laughs> in your career? And and I, I I've asked this question consistently, and uh, some people rightfully say, well, there was no luck. But, <laughs> but what I'm talking about is really circumstantial luck, meaning you did some things uh, that put you in a place to have either good luck happen or the, the other path was there and it turned into some bad luck. Right. Uh, anything that comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and I think folks who say luck isn't play into it um, miss the fact that it really does. Right. <laughs> um, I, you know, and I, and, I, and I add the word timing. It's luck and yeah. timing. Right. Um, and, and, I mean, I, you know, I got the CHRO job at, at um, Covidian. It was luck and timing, you know. Yeah. Um, the luck part was that m- many decisions I had made career-wise to that point had, had given me opportunities that 
you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, we're, we're building this portfolio of having a competitive background to get the CHRO job. Right. Whether it was projects or actual assignments that I had, you know, uh, responsibilities that I was given. So, so then you, you, you fast forward to a point where, you know, you're a vice president in human resources, you have responsibility for various pieces of the function, and your boss departs the organization that day. Well, luck played into the fact that I had compensation at the time, which put me in front of the CEO a lot because he's interested in the compensation function and executive comp as it relates to the board. So he knew me. Hmm. And and when the opportunity came to to, um, get somebody in the seat, at least on an interim basis, I was the call he made. And it was a classic call. Hey Mike, um, you, you, your boss left. Um, what do I do next? Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so uh, the the opportunity for me to to step in at least on an interim basis, and then and ultimately I proved it out. But but that was luck and timing. Yeah, you know. No How doubt. about the flip side? Bad bad luck. Yeah, bad luck. Um, you know, career decision. Um, you know, you sometimes you. You think you know, you have you think you have all of the bases covered, you've asked all the questions, and, and so you accept a role, and, and, you know, day two of the role, you're like, this isn't what I thought it was going to be, right. you know, right. and, and, and the bad luck can tend to snowball as, as time goes on. I, I learned a lesson with that example, though, where I, I waited until I expressed my, my discontent, and... I should have done it sooner. I should have spoken up sooner that it was not the ideal situation for me personally or for the organization, and I didn't. Um, and it was bad luck. It was not a good decision. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think a couple things that that reminds me of when we interview, we tend to present our most positive self. Right. And it, there are questions we really should ask, but it's kind of indelicate. It, you know, gee, I'd like to talk to some other people on the team and find out what kind of manager you are. And you do same and similar questioning when you're either expecting an offer and then you have leverage and, and you'll feel more comfortable about doing that. Uh, it's a lot easier to ask that type of question before you get hired right. than after you've accepted the job and you start uh, work. Well, and it also, it, so much is about where you're coming from. Right. So if you're if you've if you've if you're not happy in the role you have, right. you'll tend to move quicker through yep. the diligence process, and you won't ask the questions that you might otherwise have asked, yeah. um, and it leads to you know, you know, a, a bad fit, resulting from the bad luck. You sure. Know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll mix that in a soup with some other sure. things too. Would that be one of the piece of advice you'd give to people that? You know, when you make a career change or a job change, certainly, uh, as best you can control the pace, you know, slow it down a little bit. Now, companies uh, should hire slowly, but they end up hiring fast. Sure. And the same is true with applicants, that we tend to, you know, take jobs quickly. Uh, We should take them more slowly Uh, any other pieces of advice or comment on that you know as it it relates to as it relates to you know making that career change and and actually accepting that offer you know folks are very fortunate now with the amount of information that's out there in the public domain Um, I I think networking plays a significant role in moving to a new organization Um, you need to talk to folks in that organization outside of the 
recruiting process to learn about the culture and learn about is everything you're hearing through the interview process validated in, 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 in action at the organization and you do that through talking to folks that are outside the process I think it's an important thing yeah. that folks miss sometimes oh, yeah. um, I, I think also that when you get um, when you do get the opportunity to ask questions ask questions and, and ask the tough questions yeah. because as someone on the other side of the desk I admire when someone comes in with a question that potentially stumps me right you know, or one that creates pause in my response you know and, and I in in you become more memorable as a candidate by sometimes the the challenging questions you can ask about the organization or the role right so yeah it's all about how you differentiate yourself Absolutely. as an applicant yeah. and uh, not kind of get lost in the mix yep. uh, sometimes this leads to an interesting discussion but if you hadn't gone into human resources what might you have done you know, it's um, we so, talked about skiing before. Yeah, the, the, I, <laughs> be a ski instructor. You would be a ski bum. I, no would, doubt. <laughs> I don't know if you'd want to take a lesson from me, okay, but I would be right. a ski instructor. No, um, I was going down two paths when I was when I decided to leave the Marine Corps. Yeah. I was a I was a came out of the school of management at Boston College, so I I had taken all of the various management courses. So business was kind of what I wanted to get into, and I knew that. Um, actually was offered and, and, and turned down a couple of sales positions. And I think that what I was, I was a parallel process. I was going after some sales opportunities while at the same time um, looking at some HR opportunities. I didn't have an HR opportunity yet, but as I was in that process and learning more and more about the function and, and what, it, what attracted me was the variety of the function and, and it's reflected in my career. The opportunity that you, you know you're not just selling something for the rest of your life, with relationships and all that that entails, but that I was a comp person, I was in systems for a while, I was over here doing recruiting and so forth. That variety, I I, I passed on the sales opportunities to to try to get an HR opportunity. And so, uh, if HR hadn't worked out, if I hadn't pursued it, I would have definitely been in a sales environment. All right. You know, and that was leveraging that Marine Corps selling thing. Right. You know? Right, that's right. If I could sell the Marine Corps. Well, you, now you, you told them it was an attractive uniform, right? You, that's that, right. That was a big plus. Uniform made it easier. Yeah, na <laughs> Navy uh, recruiters must have a real tough time of it, I guess. You they know? do. I won't, you I won't, won't disparage won't go them there. on tape. All right. Uh, and how would you evaluate your HR career? We're going to talk about some exciting things you're doing more recently. Yeah. But how would you, on a scale of 1 to 10, where would, where would you put your HR career? I mean, as a career, as, as, as looking on it as, you know, did I get to do um, a variety of interesting and challenging things? I, I would say it's a 10, you know. I would say my, my performance in my career, you know, is probably in that 8 or 9 area because there's some do-overs do that you look back on. You right. wish you kind of had done this differently. But, but as a career, I mean, I, I think about a career and – and the opportunity to do those things that you that excite you to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Um, I didn't have many days where I didn't want to get up and out of bed in the morning. So mm -hmm. um, I think it was pretty successful. Well, that's a good standard yeah. to use for all of us. Uh, now, we're going to fast forward principally because of your good uh, uh, education, mm -hmm. Jesuit schooling, yep. that had to do with both learning, doing, and then giving back. Yeah. So uh, when we're going to talk now about your your nonprofit involvement sure. uh, and why don't you tell us a little bit about 
how you got into that. You saw this has to do with helping returning vets uh, get employment and uh, a, a pretty dramatically underserved community, right. uh, and we can talk a little bit about that. But what what uh, was the motivation initially? Yeah, you know, interesting, um, Fred. When I when I was uh, the head of HR at Covidian and. Um, I had an exchange with one of our directors who had been a CEO at a telecom company, and um, and he asked me, kind of put me on the spot, and he said, you know, Mike, what are we doing for veterans? Hmm. So as a 21-year veteran myself, my answer um, was was not the best answer I could give a director, hmm. and realized that we had opportunity to do a little bit more as a company. So I started to do work while I was the CHRO. Um, bringing a program to Massachusetts to connect transitioning veterans with employers. Doing a couple of things, focusing on networking, getting them connected to decision makers, and then helping the veterans um, translate their skills, strengths, abilities into civilian terms so they could be more competitive and get a job. Um, when I left Covidian, when, when we were required, um, I saw this great opportunity to do more of that. And, and so we, we increased the number of workshops that we do in a year. Now we've increased the geography of what we do. I do it now for a couple of other programs. Um, and, and the whole thing for me is there's a, I use the, the bridge analogy, there's a, an opportunity where veterans need to be prepared to transition. And sometimes, many times they're not, and they need help with that. And then employers really need to better understand the skills and abilities of a veteran. And so my... My mission for the last three years has really been addressing those two audiences. I speak to as many HR audiences as I do veteran audiences about this notion of both sides of this bridge being really prepared and ready to accept and cross over, you know. Meet in the middle and people get jobs, you know. Um, so, so that's been, um, it's a real passion for me, um, certainly in the last couple of years. And what I've found is I'm able to help not just the veterans because I was a veteran, but I can influence these organizations that know they want to do something. They just don't know exactly how to start. Right. And I can kind of help them think it through from a resource perspective, from a from an opportunity perspective. You know, not everyone is uh, Goldman Sachs hiring 3,000 college grads a year, you know, into these lower level right. jobs. But, but many companies, uh, Harvard Pilgrim is a good example, where they want to hire veterans they're just not exactly sure where the veteran might fit in their organization so you can kind of help them yeah. with that what are the the active stereotypes that you fight against uh, probably on both sides that yeah. the the transitioning veteran may think certain jobs are beneath them or that if they go through a tough interview they'll put that rejection at a far higher level of importance than it should have, yeah. and obviously employers carry their own stereotypes. And what yeah, the, the veteran, you know, many will come home and, and expect things to happen yep. for them. Okay. And, and they're the ones that are sitting on the end of the bridge. They haven't even started to cross. Um, and, and so it's one of those things where you've got to help yourself first. You've got to get yourself prepared and ready to then begin the hard work of the job search. Right. Um, and so, so that so that and that's that's a stereotype, but it's very real um, among the veteran community, because oftentimes they'll leave these large bases that are not in Boston, Massachusetts, and so they're not only are they leaving a job and they're leaving a an environment and a culture they know, 
but they're also leaving a lot of the resources behind that might otherwise be able to help them. So them getting back here and, and standing up on their own two feet and finding the resources to begin the search process is pretty important. On the, on the um, employer side, it only takes, you know, we, we make bad hires every day, every day. But if it's a veteran bad hire, it has ramifications yeah. for months, potentially years, in the eyes of right. a hiring manager. And, and, and regardless of the circumstances of why it might have been a bad hire, because hiring a veteran sometimes requires a little more time, hmm. a little more conversation, a little more understanding, they won't do it because it didn't work last time. And that's a big yeah. hurdle that, that we face with some companies. Yeah, you mentioned that, Mike, and I think it can apply to a lot of different classes. The, sure. The first woman hired in as a lawyer in a, in a, uh, a particular law firm or the first minority That's right. that, that gets hired in and goes for the, we tend to lump all the people together in these classes. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think that's one barrier that has to be beaten down. There's a big reluctance among um, companies to hire reservists because yeah. of the fear that they'll be mobilized. Um, there's a um, stigma around post-traumatic stress. Yeah. 20% of the, the military um, are combat veterans in, in coming home and in, in requiring you know, a different structure, a different kind of support system. doesn't mean they're less viable as a candidate, but organizations will sometimes not want to take that chance or take that risk. Um, and so getting them to understand, you know, I did a very effective panel with, um, with an organization where I had three veterans on the stage who were all working in successful careers. And we talked about this notion of disability and, and post-traumatic stress. And one of the gentlemen was a, was a marketing manager. He'd been 10 years in a special operations. He was 100% disabled. Mm -hmm. And as you sat in the audience and looked at him, you would never know that. Right. You know, he had a traumatic brain injury from an IED, uh, so he had headaches on occasion, and the accommodation, which we do for lots of folks who mm. have who require them, was he needed shades on his window in his office, and he needed the fluorescent lights taken out. Mm. And otherwise, he was a very effective and successful employee yeah. of this company. So the gentleman next to him is sitting, and he works for a financial management firm, very successful, and he says, you know, I'm 70% disabled. And he proceeds to tell about his knee and his shoulder and this and that, and in, in the education alone of just companies understanding that disabled doesn't mean you can't do. Right. It's, and to your point, it's no different whether you're a veteran or not. Right. But the stigma associated with the disabled veteran tends to be a hurdle that requires how, education. How overt does the applicant have to be in revealing these disabilities? I, I I tell them not at all. Yeah, you know, I, I it's none of it's no one's business. And maybe know? it goes back to one of those mottos that they were brought up, and you, you tell the truth, and right. and or they they don't realize enough about the stereotype. Well, and, and there is there there are many who have tripped on the question yeah. and answered it. Right. And part of what we try to prepare them with is what they can and need to say, and what they don't have to share. Right. Right. But that's a that's a really good point. I think um, it, it it I talk in terms, and I know you do as well, Fred. It's it's this competitive landscape, and you need to be you know you you got to make sure you're competitive going into it to get a position. Right. You want to be memorable, but you don't want to be 
you, you want to make sure that you're memorable because it applies to the job that yeah. I'm looking to fill. Yeah. Don't it, give me a lot of extra information about yourself that doesn't really matter. Yeah, it's, you know? it's, it's always been about emphasis and de-emphasizing certain yeah. things. And in the case we're talking about, emphasize those transferable skills right. and your, your record of dependability and service yeah. and de-emphasize the aches and pains. And sometimes they're, they're really uh, a, a job, uh, a disability that can impact the job, but reasonable accommodations right. can take care of it. So. You, you know, a lot of how we spend time with the veterans is you get 45 to 60 minutes to sell yourself. Yeah. So when they ask you about, you know, tell me about a time where you were under pressure to meet a deadline. Hmm. Don't tell them the 45-minute story of the long-range combat patrol in Afghanistan. Right. Great story. They're on the edge of their seat. They're interested. They, yeah. Time's up. Yeah. All they know about you is that story. Right. You know, and yeah. so... They have to be very, they, they, to your point, they have to be truthful but focused. Right, you know? right. And I, I guess, you know, it may be a function of budget and or just emphasis and de-emphasis. They don't have access to enough veteran services people either, I, I suspect. Uh, are, are there in-place veteran support uh, government-sponsored or run services? Um, it, it's, a, it's the way we're, we're helping veterans now from what I've seen in my experience is um, there's, the government has resources, both federal and state. Massachusetts is actually the only state or one of the only states that every city and town has a veteran service mm. officer. And so they're charged with helping a veteran navigate the benefits that they're entitled to from the government. Right. But what has happened over the last 10 to 15 years are um, veteran service agencies that have come up nonprofit on the nonprofit side that are filling in a lot of the gaps that veterans need, whether it be counseling, job services, housing, you know, health care, that kind of stuff. So it's it, there is this kind of collaborative effort of, you know, uh, government agencies with the nonprofit world. The challenge in the nonprofit side is they're not all vetted, and they're not all good. Yeah. And, and so the veteran that falls suspect, um, falls into it, you know, becomes suspect of everything else, you right. know. Right. And the classic is in the world of search. There's, there's several folks out there making money where the veteran's paying ten grand to help someone help them get a job. Yeah. You know, yeah, uh, I hear that, and I'm Yeah, it just drives you crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's always been the case, and they just move their target now That's to right. returning vets. Yep. Well, uh, obviously, this is heartfelt. It's uh, uh, a passionate mission for you, and you're going to do this uh, for a long time. So uh, how about uh, bring us up to speed? You know, you've left the traditional corporate job. Yeah. You're doing the volunteerism uh, in the returning vets, uh, but you're also consulting also. Yep. Uh, what area of focus, or is that an yeah. ongoing process to figure no, out? No, so, so for me... Um, when I decided to do consulting, I, I, when I left um, the organization, Covidian, um, the veteran stuff filled my early days, which was great. Um, really helped me get the time to, of all the things in HR that I did, what were the areas that I enjoyed the most and where do I want to focus and spend my time? And so it's really predominantly in the leadership development coaching side of things. When I think about the role I had as a CHRO and even the roles leading up to it, 
the the engagement and the influence that you can have on senior leaders to do their jobs better so that the organization is better um, is pretty attractive and, and, and energizes me. And so that's kind of been where we're focused. Um, I've partnered with some colleagues that used to work with me. We're doing a couple of things on transformational leadership. And yeah. so that's so an exciting part of, of what I'm doing. Um, you know, and I also have uh, my, my first board opportunity on a hospital system in Ohio, which has been really interesting, being on the Company HR Committee, where I used to be the, the staff to that committee, and now I'm a member. Um, it's, a, it's a real, um, it keeps me in, in incredibly engaged in the healthcare industry, which I've always been interested in, so, so that's been very good. And I'm on a handful of nonprofit boards and, okay. you know, veteran and workforce development focused. So It's interesting you, you've been so active because I think a lot of people can get paralyzed post-traditional employment with the question of what I'm going to do. Yeah. When, in fact, uh, jump in and, and start doing things. You can always disengage. Right. But uh, I think the key is, uh, in a panacea, if you will, is get active and yeah do some consulting, do some volunteerism, uh, be available to your former employer for yep. project work, and, and, and that kind of uh, activity will uh, get you rewarded. Now, you can coexist with your wife. Yes, I can. More, more hours of the week than you used to. Is that, that going okay? It I, is, it is. It's, uh, so she's she's taking a full-time job. Then, it, was, uh, okay. it was a very interesting, uh, talk about cultural shifting. It was very interesting. Big but, time. Uh, but it's all good. All right, well, thanks very much for coming in today, the Career Pod, Mike, and really enjoyed it. My okay. pleasure, Fred. Thank you. Take care now. You got it. Goodbye.